Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Volume. Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back to Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be playing a very fun game. Given that it is the middle of July, the NFL season is still a ways away. The NBA season is a ways behind us. We are going to be giving some of our all-time die-on-that-hill takes. Bold takes that we feel very, very strongly about. We each have five. These can be NBA. These can be NFL. These can be historical. These can be current. So, Logan, I will just let you get us started. What's your first take for today? This one is relevant because of news going on in the NFL world, and it's a bit of a futures bet here, Carson. Uh, My official take, Adrian Peterson is the last great NFL running back. I I think if you look around today, the – Running back position is kind of dead. Um, you got running backs having Zoom meetings, trying to coordinate how they all need to get paid, you threatening potential holdouts. And I think, uh, really quick to get this out of the way, I think what the NFL needs to do is incentivize rookie contracts. When these guys are drafted, if the running backs are taking on a serious load in the offense, like if they reach a certain amount of carries or a percentage of touches, I think they should get paid more. Like, if we're not mm-hmm. going to give out second contracts, we need to make a big adjustment into how these guys are getting paid and, like, front load their money when they are getting a lot of touches. It just makes sense. It doesn't make sense they use up all the tread on their tires and then we just kick them to the curb. But that is part of this. I think that AP may be one of the last 10,000-yard rushers ever, Carson. His first seven seasons, AP goes for 10,115 yards, 86 tutties. Uh, he misses that next season, comes back even better. But... On average, 290 touches, 1,500 yards, and 12 TDs per season. And you look at the guys currently around the league, I think there's only a handful that have a chance to actually get to 10,000. Derrick Henry has the best. He's 1,700 away. I think he's probably going to get there, right? He's going to be 29 next season. 1,700 is not that much. He could do that over three seasons. Maybe he could do it if he has a massive year next year. But And you get down to Ezekiel Elliott, who is still currently unsigned. Mark Ingram is expected to retire 
Nick Chubb, I think, has an opportunity to do it. But again, he's going to have to be so prolific and productive these next couple of seasons. Dalvin Cook, not even at 6,000 yet. He has not been offered a contract. Like, this is a brutally physical position. Offenses, frankly, are not built the way that they used to in the olden days, right? It was routine, Carson. We'd see backs get 300 touches, and they'd last forever. The Corey Dillons of the world, the Warwick Dunn's. Uh, even the Steven Jacksons, right? All those guys are 10K backs, and they were routinely getting close to 300 touches on the ground every single year. We're just not built around the position anymore. Uh, there's just a lack of volume and touches. I'd say Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb are the last of a real dying breed. Um, and so I seriously wonder, my official take here, is if another running back will crack the top 10 in rushing yards in NFL history – and I really don't think that anyone will ever eclipse the top five mark. To do that, to get in the top 10, you need 12,000 yards. That's another 4K from Derrick Henry. That's kind of a tall task considering I don't think he's lost a major step. I don't think he's on his last legs yet. But that's a lot more work to do for a guy who's getting up there in age. Nick Chubb, again, 6,000 to crack the top 10. Carson, I just think we're seeing a dying breed, a dying position, a dying style of football and I don't know if we'll ever see another top 10 rusher. I would put almost all of my money on saying that I don't think we'll ever see another top five rusher. I think Adrian Peterson and Derrick Henry are probably the last great rushing running backs. I think we'll see more guys who are great dual threat, but I don't know if we'll ever see running backs built like that, man. The game is changing. The position is dying and guys just don't get the volume of opportunity that they once had. And again, it is the most brutally physical position in all the football. You were getting hit so much. You were getting so much contact on a play-to-play, down-to-down basis. I think Adrian Peterson and Derrick Henry are kind of the last of a dying breed. This is a really interesting take. And I think if you are talking about top 10 rushers of all time, like will anybody ever enter the top 10 in rushing yards again? I think you're right. I don't see it happening. Now, if you're talking about top 10 running backs, if we were to rank them, that's mm-hmm. a different conversation because you can be there without having, you know, a really multiple contract peak like Terrell Davis did all it took to get into those conversations in four years. Derrick Henry, I think, already because of what he's done in his peak, belongs in those top 10 running back conversations. But yeah, I think that there is a very obvious reason that we are currently at this crossroads and having all these conversations about running back pay. And it's because of how the position has been devalued, obviously going towards much more pass heavy offenses and towards more running backs by committee. And because of how disastrous it has been when teams try to pay these established star running backs, those massive second contracts, like you just go down the list. Dalvin Cook, even though he was producing at a fine level, had shown some regression, and so he gets cut just two years into his new big contract. Alvin Kamara, a couple years into his extension, has already shown some pretty steep regression in terms of his efficiency as a runner. Todd Gurley was, like, the most productive offensive player in the league, considering position. And within a couple years of getting his money, he was totally washed. Le'Veon Bell, obviously, a precipitous decline. And... You look at the guys who are on these contracts right now. Ezekiel Elliott just got cut this past offseason because he regressed sharply. So there's just no denying the trend at the position. And as you said, that the value is more and more related to that dual threat capacity. So, yeah, I think that this is a good take. I think it's a fascinating one. I also agree with your point about having to incentivize 
these uh, rookie contracts more with, hey, if you are utilized at this volume, because I think what's tough here is that from a business perspective, it does not make sense to give these running backs these second big contracts. At the same time, from a human perspective, when these dudes are playing this brutally violent sport and for a majority of their football playing lives, they're not getting compensated. That changes a bit now with NIL, but still most of these guys aren't getting real money from that. To then basically have a four-year window where the amount that you can be paid is hard capped by just the fact that you're a rookie, that doesn't feel right to me either. So I think that there has to be a middle ground reached there, but I agree with your take. Well, yeah, and I want one more. I want to point out one more thing about the contract situation here too. We've seen holdouts in NFL history, right? We had the NFL went to scabs right in the 80s, and we had the picket fence, and guys crossed that line. I don't think that's something that running backs should explore. I completely understand why they'll, why they're considering holding out. Carson, I think that if we get a mass committee of running backs like the top-end stars of the league, I think they're going to find out pretty quickly that these owners have no issue with going to depth running backs and going down yeah. the depth charts. Like, I think these guys are so talented. I think they deserve their money. They deserve to get paid wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I think one of the best points that we saw get pointed out is you put all your heart into it. The coaches rile you up. Oh, if you dominate, if you lead our offense to these heights, you will get paid, and then it doesn't happen. I think if they hold out, you're going to find that just how devalued the running back position is, that guys are going to step in and they are going to produce at a very high level comparable to where you guys are at with just, you know, they're getting paid a lot less. I just don't think it's something that running backs should explore. They're going to find out just how fast, uh, <laughs> how fickle these NFL owners really are, man. I don't think it's a good idea, but we do need to restructure this entirely, man. Running backs deserve to get paid, and I just think it needs to happen sooner rather than later. We've just seen it too many times where the undrafted or the fifth or sixth round rookie mm -hmm. comes in and immediately behind a good line is as productive as like the stars around the league and super efficient. So I agree with you. There's a distinction to be made here and that running back is one of the most iconic and one of the coolest positions in football history, but is very clearly one of, if not the most replaceable. So I want these guys to get their money, but this is a brutal business. Owners are as cutthroat as they come, and I agree with you. I don't think the running backs really have the leverage here, unfortunately, for them. Okay, my first bold take. OJ didn't do it. <laughs> How about that? No, I'm kidding. What a tragedy that was. And uh, Oh, my gosh. All of those who were affected <laughs> find peace in uh, the time that he did spend in prison. No, my first take is that uh, Melo is the most overrated NBA player ever. So, let's start with this. Melo had two phases of elite play in his career. You have the Denver years, where he is a great athlete and rim pressurer, but is a highly inconsistent jump shooter. He's shooting in the mid to high 30s from mid-range. He's 31% from deep in his Denver career. So the bottom line result is that you have this volume, but league average efficiency score, who is a uniquely bad playmaking star. Like Mello was just as bad at reading the floor as score first as they come. He had the same number of turnovers as assists in his Denver career at 3.1 per game and is a minus defensively. So in all of his Denver years, Melo's teams were a whopping one point per 100 possessions better with him on the floor than off it, which is a truly minimal contribution to winning if you are comparing him to any of his star 
peers. Then you have the New York years where Mello is a significantly better jump shooter. He's up to about 43% from mid-range, 37% from deep. He is much more refined as a post scorer and as a skilled scorer overall, but he's not nearly the same athlete. So he's not creating those high value opportunities around the rim like he did when he was younger. So the result is still a league average efficiency volume score who is a bad playmaker and who is a minus defensively. And this is like the ultimate archetype for the flashy star non-winning player throughout NBA history. The guy who is a quote-unquote bucket getter. I mean, who doesn't love a little bit of a mellow jab step pivot turnaround right in your mouth? Who didn't love young mellow with the cornrows flying high? But fundamentally, he never put together the traits that equate to winning basketball. In his playoff career, his efficiency plummeted to 51% true shooting, and he had more turnovers than assists on the playoff stage. And he really has one good playoff run in his whole career, that being the 2009 Western Conference Finals. His teams were worse with him on the floor in his playoff career than when he was on it, and they were barely better in the regular season. And this isn't just to completely devalue what Mello was, which was a really fun star, but the people that I see him compared to, you'll see these like start bench cut graphics and it'll be like him, Tracy McGrady and Paul George. And I just think Paul George is at his peak, a better pull-up shooter than Mello, a better rim pressurer than the version of Mello that was like a relatively good pull-up jump shooter. A better playmaker, clearly, and a way better defender, a more efficient scorer all around, who led his team to higher heights multiple times than we ever saw Melo do. T-Mac, I mean, is in another stratosphere as a playmaker and did a better job of putting together all of those high-end traits. Like, if you look at the 3 season from him, the pull-up jump shooting and the athleticism, all that coming together while being a better defender, just a better basketball player than Melo. I'll take it one step further, Logan. We're putting Mello into conversations he has no place being in. I think Alex English is a better Denver Nuggets small forward than Carmelo Anthony. You know who won more playoff series between the two of them? Who scored at a higher volume in the playoffs, was significantly more efficient, and was the better playmaker? It's Alex English. So I just think because of this era that he played in, his association with the 2003 draft class and... D Wade and LeBron, the fact that obviously he was in the New York market, which is like the biggest boost to your star factor that you could ever get. And because he did have this fun aesthetic style in terms of his bag, really people elevate mellow into conversations that he has no place being in. So I just think because of the things that we talked about inefficient score in the scope of stardom, bad at everything else on the floor, just not a guy who contributed to winning. I think the most overrated player in NBA history. Dude, this is a very, very spicy one, but I, I completely understand it. I was a little shocked immediately just because Melo is one of the most fun players in NBA history. That's why people love him so much. And when you talk about bucket getting, Melo is up there as like just like one of the toughest buckets ever and like how quick he had and that quick yeah. release. Like you said, that jab step. I always love how guys talk about his physicality, but you also hear when you listen to like George Carl talk about those old Nuggets teams and he will tear Melo a new one because Melo wasn't hustling. He wasn't a great defender. He didn't like to share the rock. His attitude too. I think all that compiles. And to that point, I saw that same graphic the other day, Carson. 
I'm going PG T Mac Mello, and that's not really a thought for me. Like it really did surprise me. I think people have underrated PG too. I know people uh, went crazy when Brandon Miller said he was his goat, but like Paul George's one peak season, I seriously would take over either of those two guys. I, I don't think him and Mello at their peaks are in the same class. Most overrated player of all time is crazy. Like, is there anybody else up there for you in that like in that tier, or do you think Mello stands alone? Well, I considered Russ, but ultimately I just have more respect for peak Russ mm -hmm. than I do peak Mello. I think he did more truly great things with his rim pressuring, with his playmaking value. You could argue to me Dominique Wilkins, who I think has so many of the same shortcomings, like a super inefficient volume scorer, not a good playmaker, not a good defender, and therefore didn't really lead to the highest levels of team success, but is glorified because of how fun he was with his athleticism. But I feel good about Melo. I legitimately think he's number one. Melo's, Melo's an all-time scorer, super fun to watch, but I don't disagree when we were talking about winning contributions. That's the most important thing when it comes to it, and Melo didn't get it done. One guy that does lead to winning at a really high level, surprisingly for a defensive player, and I can already hear you guys. Shut up, you Steelers fan. Get off your soapbox. I'm tired of it. I don't care. T.J. Watt has been the best defensive player in the NFL for four straight seasons, and he still is. I think because he played 10 games last year, everybody's been disrespecting him, and I think people have forgotten how truly dominant T.J. Watt is. If nobody else wants to go to bat for him, I will. I think he's got one of the most complete skill sets by any pass rusher I've ever seen. And I also want on the record, too. I wanted to say TJ Watt's the greatest pass rusher I've ever seen. I can't go that far. He needs to do it for a few more seasons. But I do truly think TJ's that special. First, when you look at TJ off the line of scrimmage, he has the greatest, one of the greatest bursts of any player I've ever seen. His reaction time, his explosiveness, he is routinely off the ball right as it snapped and gets the quickest first step. Uh, of anybody on the field. He's got great agility, the way he bends around offensive tackles and can just get angles, stay upright, and get to the quarterback. He's got great hands, the way he swipes through guys when they try to set their base. And again, that's part of it. Swipes through, he gets around the edge, easy. He's got a great motor. TJ never stops. He routinely makes second effort plays, either on the quarterback in the backfield or upfield when there's a pass uh, on, a short, uh, on a short pass, like a slant or a drag or something. And then his strength. You look at the knockback that TJ consistently creates on these massive offensive tackles. He swings them open like doors. He just completely disregards them. T you find somebody that can guard TJ Watt, and I will find you a liar. The guy doesn't exist on the planet. He's got the most sacks in the NFL since he entered the league. That's 77 and a half. That's more than Aaron Donald, Miles Garrett. Might I remind you, he had 22 and a half, actually 23 in 2021, but the NFL wants him and Michael Strahan to share that record. He sacked Tyler Huntley. He broke the record, but it's okay, NFL. You guys can keep your little tainted record books. He's one of 18 guys who's had 20 sacks in a single season. And so he's an all-time great pass rusher, right, historically, already. But he's also an all-time disruptor. He has led the NFL every year in pressures since 2019, save last year when he was hurt. He was second in 2018. He only played 10 games last year. He's got 23 forced fumbles, the most since he entered the league. He's also got six picks. He has the most combined forced fumbles and interceptions by a non-defensive back since 2017. He's also second in tackles for loss since 2017 behind Aaron Donald. Every year, this is my favorite stat, I give this all the time, every year that T.J. Watt has been fully healthy, the Steelers have led the NFL in sacks, and 
the defining trait to me that separates him from other defensive players is how TJ single-handedly swings games. Yes, pressure is important. I think edge rusher is the most important position on the football field, save quarterback. Pressure wins football games. That is proven. He's an all-time at swinging games by forcing turnovers, right? He just disrupts the game more than any other guys. But when you watch the tape, when you watch these close Pittsburgh Steelers football games, TJ is consistently making game-winning plays. I encourage you, go back to the 2021 season when he was fully healthy. Watch that Broncos game. Watch that Seahawks game. Watch that Bears game. Watch that Ravens game. I think those four games and two more, I think TJ Watts single-handedly won the Steelers six games that year. I I think that you can argue Donald or Parsons maybe for versatility, Carson, or well-rounded impact, right? Donald's a better run stopper than TJ. I think Parsons' Mm -hmm. positional versatility is extremely valuable. But he's the best pass rusher in football. He's an all-time defensive playmaker and game changer. And I don't think anybody on the planet can guard him. I think you're going to find next season, TJ's going to get right back up into that top conversation. I think he's going to be the best defensive player on the planet once again. I just think he misses a couple games last year and everybody's sleeping on him. I still think he's the best defensive player in football. I would hope that you would die on this hill. I would. As a Steelers I will go fan. to war. I will go to war. Yeah. I think this is a good take. I honestly think that the only real competition is Aaron Donald, and I think that you made the key argument. It's the ability to completely dominate as a pass rusher from the interior and also to completely dominate as a run stopper in a way that TJ doesn't quite, but I do think that TJ is clearly the best pass rusher in the league right now. So I don't really have a whole lot to add. I I wish you had gone a little spicier maybe because then I could push back, but I think that TJ Watt is the best defensive player in the NFL. I'm glad you think that. You're uh, a a smart man for that, Carson. Is there any other, like, (laughs) I don't know, like, is there any other guys you would consider up there? I think Watt and Donald are kind of in a tier of their own. Like, I seriously, and I know Browns fans are going to push back too. I know there's a big contingency that thinks Miles Garrett is right there. I think Donald and Watt are like, tier like tier a and then i think there's garrett and like everybody else like nick bosa max crosby all those Mm -hmm. guys let me ask you this would you take peak tj or peak jj that's man i'm taking peak tj because i think tj just makes more like game breaking plays but that's close i mean jj was the best defensive player in football for three years too he has a 20 sack season pretty disruptive I'm going to give the edge to TJ, though, man. I just think that 2021, I mean, that's the greatest pass rushing season I've ever seen, bar none. Okay, see, now I've worked you up the Scoville scale a little bit. I would take peak JJ. I think that peak JJ is at least comparable as a pass rusher and was a more devastating run stuffer. I just think about, like, that 2012 season when he has 39 tackles for loss and nobody else approaches that number. Like, as an all-around backfield menace... I think that J.J. is the best of our lifetimes and legitimately up there for the best of all time at his best. So I'll disagree with you there, but I like the spirit of your original take. Logan, my second bold take is that Steve Nash deserved both his MVPs. And I think this is an eternally divisive conversation in the NBA sphere. Let's start with 2005 because I actually think this one is incredibly painfully obvious and like should not be a discussion so the year before nash joined the suns they were a 29 win team they were largely very healthy amare missed a bit of time but they already had a 
quote-unquote star point guard in Stefan Marbury. In fact, it was in his nickname, Logan. They called him Starbury. And yet they were the number 21 offense in the league. So then you inject Steve Nash into that same situation, basically. Amar is a little healthier. They add Quentin Richardson. And all of a sudden, they're a historically great offense and the best offense in the league. And I think that we need to start this conversation by really diving into what made Steve Nash so great. Because a lot of people... I think, look at the raw offensive totals, particularly his scoring, and say, how could that guy have been better or more deserving an MVP than peak Kobe or than young LeBron or than Shaquille O'Neal? And I think that the fundamental goal of any offensive player is not to rack up these raw counting stats. It is to create consistent advantages. It is to put the defense in a spot where either you are going to get a good shot that you will make efficiently and consistently, or you're going to create a good shot for your buddy because of how the defense is reacting to you and your capacities as a decision maker and passer. And then he is going to consistently make that shot efficiently because at the end of the day, it's a points per possession kind of game. It's not a a raw total that one guy can contribute. It's a raw total that a team contributes. And I just think Steve Nash was constantly putting defenses in compromised positions and is one of the most efficient offensive engines that we've ever seen accordingly. And it starts with his uh, threat to score. Nash had really high level quickness, but he also was a brilliant ball handler and had phenomenal change of pace and was just a master of navigating pick and roll situations. Like he could just hit you with that hesitation and boom, he's past you. He could snake the pick and roll perfectly and just basically work his way to that free throw line area consistently. And the free throw line jumper for him is a layup. And that's what's so important is that he was constantly weaponized his scoring to create great playmaking opportunities and get his teammates easy buckets. And that's something that we seem to understand with great playmakers like Magic Johnson. People don't look at Magic and say, oh, he averaged 18 and 12. How could this guy have been so great? But everybody does that for Steve Nash when it is absolutely the same principle for both of them. Like, do people just think it's a coincidence that Steve Nash led eight number one offenses in nine years? Logan, that is an unprecedented feat in NBA history. Again, like only the Showtime Lakers are in that same tier of just all-time offense after all-time offense for a decade. When you're talking about the threat that is Steve Nash's scoring, the number one key is that he is one of the greatest shooters of the basketball ever. And I think as a pull-up jump shooter, might be second only to Steph Curry. If you look at this season, he shot 50% in the paint outside the restricted area. Some of that is floaters. A lot of that is just short-range jump shots. He was 50% for mid-range, and he was 45% on above the break threes. So if he has a sliver there, he can kill you with elite efficiency every single possession. But then... If you hedge harder, if you step up to try to take away that jump shot, he could make every pass in the book and is one of the most deceptive passers ever, which just took his playmaking value up to another level because he could force you to collapse on him up to that last split second and then still make the perfect pass. Like he's the king of the jump pass. He's the king of the fake to where you are worried about the shot or you're worried about him passing to some other uh, player on the team and he ends up creating the highest percentage opportunity he could get it anywhere bounce passes in traffic kickouts to shooters lobs like he is to me a top two passer of all time with magic and he always made the right decision 
and there rarely was a bad decision because he's either going to have a look at a pull-up jump shooter where a uh, pull-up jump shot where he's historically great or he's going to create a look for a teammate he's also outside of pick and roll one of the greatest transition playmakers obviously we talk about the seven seconds or less sons and so he was going to excel there consistently so the result of this was an offense that improved by 17 points per 100 possessions with Steve Nash out there. So for context, that's a larger increase than the 2016 Warriors with Steph. And in the year 2005, when offense was at a, a relative low point throughout modern NBA history, the Suns were a better offense in terms of efficiency per possession with Nash on the floor, then the 2016 Warriors were with Steph. Like, that is how much they were outpacing competition around the league by. So Nash is just one of the greatest offensive engines ever, no question about it. Then you look at the fact that Shaq's case really is not very compelling to me. At this age, he was scoring under 22 points per game. He really was not moving that well. Like, this is Shaq into his 30s now. He was heavy. He wasn't near his peak playmaking or defensive impact. And he was just on a really good team. Like, the Suns, again, went from 29 wins pre-Nash to 62 wins with Nash. The Heat had won 42 games the year before. And yes, they had to give up some valuable pieces to get Shaq in, like Lamar Odom and Karan Butler. But this year, without Shaq, they still outscored opposing teams by 3.5 points per 100 possessions. That's like the mark of a good playoff team. They were 6-3 and three in games that Shaq didn't play in. And D-Wade was this incredible young star. He was their leading scorer and playmaker on comparable efficiency to Shaq. So, of course, in any situation, Shaq is going to have tremendous offensive value just because uh, he was still so incredibly tough to stop out of the post one-on-one -on -one because of his size and his go-tos with the hooks and whatnot. So, yeah, he is going to reshape a defense. They're going to collapse around him a lot. But this is, like, nowhere near peak Shaq, which I think a lot of people can mischaracterize when they're like, oh, wow, Steve Nash stole MVPs from Shaq and Kobe. This is not the Shaq that you may be envisioning. And then I only bring this up because of those arguments that imply that it's like, oh, Shaq was so clearly better than Steve Nash. Why would they do this for the regular season? In these playoffs, Nash was 24-11 and 11 because he could always ramp up his volume as a scorer when he needed to. Like, that's the thing. He was willingly weaponizing it to create more playmaking opportunities. It wasn't that he couldn't get a whole ton of buckets because he's one of the greatest shooters ever and he was quick and everything that we've talked about, incredible ball handler, on plus 7.5% true shooting versus league average, maintaining elite efficiency. Playoff Shaq was 19-8-2 on plus 2% true shooting, and by the playoffs, pretty clearly was the second best guy on his own team in that run. So... I just think there's no question that Nash was a better player who led a better team in more impressive circumstances and pioneered one of the greatest offensive seasons ever. Then you have 2006, which I am less passionate about. I think you can argue multiple guys, but what I will say is it's probably a more impressive season from Nash. It's just the competition for this race is much better. But Amari is hurt all year this time around, and they still produce the number one offense in the league. They go 54-25 and 25 when Nash plays. They're 0-3 without him. He ups his scoring volume to almost 19 points per game, improves his efficiency from everywhere, and actually leads the league in true shooting percentage. He's the most efficient scorer in the league while being the best playmaker in the league, while leading the best offense in the league without his co-star. I will give credit to the other candidates, though, because they're much more compelling. This is Kobe's 35-point-per-game season, and he's doing it on slightly above-league average efficiency. 
improved the Lakers offense by a massive amount, 19 mm -hmm. points per 100 possessions. Like the talent on that team is really legitimately bad. LeBron puts up 31-7-7, improves the Cleveland offense by 14 points per 100, which was also a bad supporting cast, and he does that on above-league average efficiency. And then Dirk is dropping 27 a night on plus 4% true shooting versus league average for a 60-win team, and he didn't have another legitimate star there. So I would understand a case for any of the three of them. What I'll say in comparison to LeBron and Kobe is that those guys, although they certainly have the volume advantages they could still only lead their teams to be good offenses and they could not rival Nash's efficiency and neither of them were near his brilliance as a playmaker, not this age of LeBron at least. Whereas Nash made the Suns without Amare great, historically so, offensively. And I just think the precedent for MVP, and this is very clear throughout NBA history, it's only started to waver at all in the last few years, is that you give it to the guy who leads to an elite result. You don't give it to the guys who drag bad supporting casts to above average results. And I just think Nash was the guy who met that former criteria. And I think he was a better one-man offensive engine than Dirk because of the massive gap in terms of playmaking. So, bottom line, Nash very clearly deserved the first one. I still believe that he deserved the second. And by the way, there's a reason that he was runner-up in 2007, even though Dirk was on a 67-win team, like Nash got a good amount of first-place votes, and it's because he was just very apparently one of the best offensive engines ever, and now some people try to go back and rewrite that because the raw numbers aren't as gaudy as they are for some other guys. I would take Peak Nash over Stockton. I would take him over Isaiah. I would take him over Jason Kidd. I would take him over probably any point guard you can think of in that tier. I think he's clearly a better offensive engine than Chris Paul has ever been. I would probably take Chris Paul over him because of the defensive gap and i think that actually cp3 honestly is probably the second best offensive player out of that group that i just named as well but steve nash was the man and i think that he gets underrated a lot of the time because of counting stats it's that simple no i mean i think steve nash is one of the most consistently disrespected superstars in nba history people kind of disregard him uh for the counting numbers and for the like lack of you know being an impact defender too yeah, I think this is a good take, dude. I think he does deserve both of those. I think Kobe definitely makes a good case in 06. To take a team when you're off the floor, they had an offensive rating of 91 to 111. That's unreal. But again, the Lakers weren't a great team, and for Nash to do that without Amari is pretty remarkable. I think I think it's a good take, and I think people need to put some respect on Nash's name, dude. He is literally one of the most consistently disrespected guys, and I think those are the two MVPs that get called out the most i think nash definitely mm -hmm. deserved both of those i have a bit of a lukewarm take here but i want to this is crazy to me carson brett Favre's turnover record is the most unbreakable in sport there are some things that are too good to keep a secret like how your amex platinum card helps you have the perfect trip i'd like to check into the centurion lounge or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, 
elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to point game. King of the court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. (laughs) I mean, nobody is coming close to this thing. Guys, 363. 363 turnovers. Like, he leads NFL history with 336 picks, 166 fumbles. I think that's bullshit. They say Favre lost just 37 fumbles. I think we should go back and rewatch that tape because I guarantee he lost more than that. Like, I'm, <laughs> I would guarantee his turnover count is even higher. So you ask yourself, what do you need to break this record? Well, you need impeccable longevity, right? There's a reason that they say that, you know, Brett Favre is one of the iron men of football. You could play every single game of a 17-game season for 20 years. That would total 340 games, which means you need over a turnover a game, every game, for 20 seasons. And think about this, too. I think this is one of the most underrated things about Favre. Favre has one of the highest peaks in NFL history. Three straight seasons, three MVPs, he gets his Super Bowl, right? Brett Favre was ultimately afforded the rope that he had in Green Bay because of that early success, because of that peak, because he got a Super Bowl very early on in his career. So you need to be extremely healthy. You quite literally cannot miss games. But you also you also have to be remarkably inefficient and not get benched. You need to average 15 to 20 turnovers plus a season. Favre was doing that in picks alone with fumbles. 15 to 20 turnovers a year. Remind you, since 2020, the most interceptions we've had in a single season is 17. Guys are just getting more and more efficient as years progress, right? I would hope the quarterback position would get better. Shout out Jameis for chucking 30 in 2019. I mean, I don't think we're seeing that again. So you need to have 20 years of play with 20 or more turnovers per season. 
I just don't think a guy is getting that kind of burn while being healthy. I think it is the most unbreakable record in sports. I don't think anybody's coming close to this thing. Like, Mm -hmm. again, Eli is the closest thing that we can point to that has been healthy for that long that maybe, you know, could be that careless. I think it's unbreakable. I think that if Jameis maybe started and played every game for the next decade, we might have a shot. We might have a shot. But there's just nobody that is going to have this kind of rope, this kind of consistency playing. It's it's the greatest record ever. It's such an achievement. And it's just never going to be broken. <laughs> it is, dude. 363 turnovers is insane. Nobody is smelling that. That is the most unbreakable record definitely in the NFL and I think in sports history, I don't think anybody is ever coming close to breaking that record. I think you're right. I will nominate some other candidates <laughs> for the most unbreakable record, though. I think within the NFL, you have to look at Jerry Rice mm-hmm. receiving yards just because still he has a 5,400-yard lead on second place, that being Larry Fitzgerald, who played 17 years. Of course, we are seeing... 1700 yard seasons at paces that we never had before like passing numbers are just through the roof obviously and longevity overall in sports is better than it's ever been so that one is probably going to be a bit more threatened just because the stylistic trends are in the total opposite direction people are turning the ball over less and they're throwing for a lot more yards so uh, i still think that merits a mention and then i will mention john stockton's steel record like the fact that cp3 being a multiple-time steel champ is still over 700 behind Stockton. And just overall, individual steel numbers are not as high around the league as they used to be. And then I also think John Stockton's assist record. He's 3,700 up on Jason Kidd. He's over 4,000 up on Chris Paul there. Like, Kidd and Paul are dudes who excelled in both these categories for effectively 20 years, very close to it. And they're still 25, 30% of the way behind John Stockton. So any of those you think could be tougher or are you sticking with Favre? I mean, dude, there's no one is come. Like, I don't, I wonder if somebody will hit 300 again, like with how efficient guys are in today's league. And again, I want to emphasize too, as much as they were getting hit, like Favre was remarkably healthy and could just play through anything, like injuries, Favre was out there. Brett Favre's father passed away uh, before Monday night or Sunday night football one time against the Raiders. He came out and chucked, I think, four touchdowns. Like, Favre played every game. I think those, I wonder if Rice's record will fall, like just with how we're leaning towards offensive players and players' safety as well as these gaudy numbers in a 17-game season. I actually think that if, like, Justin Jefferson can stay healthy and is there that long, that one could fall. I'd be, I'd be you know, shocked. I don't yeah. think anybody's ever touching the Stockton records, though. I think those are just as unbreakable. And I will add one more. I was thinking very much in the scope of career records, mm-hmm. but if we're looking at individual seasons, and I'm just thinking NBA and NFL here. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a million different sports records, but that's what we focus on. Nobody's ever scoring 50 points per game in a year again. (laughs) Fair. Like, even with the offensive explosions that we are seeing, the pace had to be so ridiculously high, like over 120 possessions a game. 130, I think, at that point. And Wilt was playing 48 minutes, and he was taking every damn shot. Like, that 
is never going to happen. There's a reason that with all the crazy offense we've seen, we haven't seen anybody like even touch 40. That one's never going away. But I absolutely agree that far record is also not going away. Okay, since I just talked for 12 minutes about Steve Nash, I'm going to try to go with one of my shorter takes here. I just have a lot written down, Logan. I have a lot to say. These are my, like, die-on-a-hill takes, you know? I don't want to die. I would actually like to win the battle and then stay alive on the hill. So I'll go with my only football take here. I think Steve Young's peak is clearly much better than Joe Montana's. And we just did our top 10 quarterback rankings a bit ago. We both had Montana higher. But I think that's really about the totality of the career. The fact that Steve doesn't take the starting job until he's 30. And so he only has like seven seasons as the Niners starter. But if you look at what he did in 1994, 35 touchdowns leading the league to just 10 picks, over 70% completion. It's incredible volume. And he is the most efficient quarterback in the league by every metric. Yards per attempt, passer rating, while being... One of the best dual threats that we've ever seen. He rushed for seven touchdowns that year. So he's MVP in the regular season. And then he goes into the playoffs and he throws nine touchdowns to no picks and rushes for another two touchdowns and 43 yards per game. So I just think all things considered, if we are comparing peak to peak, Steve Young was the better arm talent. He was even more accurate than Montana and more efficient. He made fewer mistakes. He was much more dynamic with his legs, both as a runner and as a play extender, outside the pocket kind of threat. I love Joe Cool. I think that his playoff resume in particular is just incredible. But I think once Steve Young was really rolling, man, like that entire stretch of 92 through 96, I think it's a higher peak than we ever saw from Montana. And I particularly think that 94 season is one of the few greatest quarterback seasons that we have ever seen and like you could make an argument for as the most perfect quarterback season ever I think this is a this is a solid take the only edge I'd give Montana in uh is like play action passes I think Montana is one of the greatest out of you know selling fakes and stuff like that but when you talk about complete value yeah dual threat ability Steve Young clearly clears and I think are comparable in terms of accuracy right like Montana's a great deep ball thrower. So is Steve Young. You know, I, I think this is a – I like this. I don't think most people will agree with you because of the career success, but I think this is a good take. And I actually have one that – I think I might get some pushback from you, Carson. Good. 2015 Cam Newton's peak is top five by a quarterback all time. I'm talking about that single season. So we got Patrick Mahomes, right? Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Rodgers. Those are my four. I'd say five is Cam Newton. Then I already know uh, where you're going to go with this. I can already tell. Carson, Newton's one of eight quarterbacks to have 45 total TDs or more in a single season. He's one of five to have at least 3,800 passing yards and 600 rushing yards in a single season. He led the NFL that year in game-winning drives with four. The Panthers had the number one offense in football and the number two red zone offense in football. And I think what a lot of people forget about Cam this year is just how good he was in the pocket. Now, Cam's never been an overly like, great, efficient pocket passer, right? Like, he was at 59% completion percentage this year, but still was a phenomenal deep ball thrower, throwing absolute ropes, and he's doing this with minimal weapons. Uh, Greg Olson's his best, you know, pass receiver. He's all pro, but you got Jericho Cotchery, Ted Ginn, Devin Funches, Philly Brown, and I think this version of Cam Newton, this is the distinct advantage I'll give him over Josh Allen because I think that they have a lot Mm. of similarities, and I think that's where the pushback is going to come through here. Mm -hmm. I think this is the best rushing and red zone threat by a quarterback we've ever seen. I think even 
more so than Josh Allen. I think Pete Cam Newton is the greatest rusher, like, complete. I'm talking red zone. I'm talking overall. I think the greatest rushing quarterback ever is Lamar Jackson. But when you're talking about complete value, including the red zone, I think it's Cam Newton. And the other advantage, too, is I just think this version of Cam is slightly better at protecting the football than Josh Allen. And that's the distinction I would make because I think they're very similar. And Cam actually climbed the mountain and got to the Super Bowl. Carson, I genuinely think Josh will be in this conversation if we just see him get through the playoffs. I know he's been great in the playoffs. I have to see him get to the big game before I can put him on this kind of pedestal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do think he's close. But it is sad. That's How do you remember Cam Newton's 2015 season, Carson? What sticks out? What's the, what's the one play? He didn't jump on the fumble. He didn't jump on that ball. And that's what's sad is that's how we're always going to remember this season is he didn't dive for a loose ball. And I think it's a stark contrast to, like, Drew Brees. That's one of the plays that sticks out for me from his career. He's with the Chargers back in, uh, I believe it was either Rivers' rookie season or the year previous, regular season game, regular game. Brees dives to that football, tears his shoulder labrum, has to go through all these surgeries and stuff, and Cam didn't dive on that ball. He also had another fumble in that game and an interception in the Super Bowl. He just crumbled. And so ultimately, I think we're always going to hold that a bit against Cam. But this peak is, I think, up there for one of the greatest ever. I would say top five. This version of Cam Newton is unreal. A tremendous deep ball thrower, one of the greatest threats on the ground, and in my opinion, the most unstoppable red zone threat we've seen from a quarterback ever. I think Josh Allen is very close, Carson. I think if we are looking at all-time peaks, it is tight, but uh, I would take Cam as a top five peak by a QB ever. Like, it's it's insane. I wish it was longer. I really miss Cam Newton when he was fully healthy, and I miss this version of him. He was a lot of fun, too, but uh, very rarely have we seen this kind of arm talent and uh, ground ability and red zone efficiency mm-hmm. the way we saw with Cam. Well, I'm just very amused because you anticipated my exact argument. I was literally going to mm-hmm. say what makes him better than Josh Allen right now. Here's where I'll push back. I love Pete Cam. You will not find me saying negative things about Pete Cam. But I think that Josh is bringing you 85% of the value as a rusher. Like, he didn't quite have Cam speed, but he absolutely has the physicality and the size. And he does have, I think, that same level of dominance as a short-distance runner. Like, we're seeing Josh year-in, year-out run for... I mean, in his career, he's averaged almost eight rushing touchdowns per season, and the Bills have been the number one third down offense in two of the last three years. So he is dominant in those capacities, while he is also just a better thrower of the football. Like, he is not quite matching Cam's production as a rusher from that season, but really darn close to it, while he's also throwing for 4,500 yards and is much more efficient as a passer. Like, I think... If you look at 2020 Josh Allen, when he was at his low point for turnovers and he was completing the highest percentage of his passes, it was just the all-around best throwing version that we've seen from him. I would take that guy over Cam. And then I think if you're looking at 2021, when you consider the incredible level that he reached in that postseason, like just playing a absolute masterclass against the Patriots leading to seven touchdowns on seven offensive possessions and throwing for five with four incompletions. And then the fact that he played another perfect football game against Patrick Mahomes, 
I just don't think Cam was ever able to reach that level as a thrower. Like that level of masterclass. Cam's not quite that kind of arm talent. He's not quite that accurate. And I think that Josh has become underrated in his ability to read the field and make good decisions and dissect zone and all these things because, yeah, he's had a couple of boneheaded moments. He's had too many. This past season, I think, actually was a bit of regression. But I think if you're looking at the 2021 season, the 2020 season, I would prefer that version of Josh to even Pete Cam. He's leading the top three team offenses in terms of scoring every year. And I do value the fact that it's a multi-year peak more than Cam's one-year peak because this is three years of Josh at a similar level, whereas Cam, that one year, was really an outlier. I would also say, as I just hinted at, I would take Steve Young's peak over Cam. Who were the only ones you had above him? Mahomes, Breeze, Peyton, and Brady? Or Rodgers? Yeah. But you didn't have Breeze then? I, I didn't I, have Breeze, no. Would you I take Breeze as well? I think I peak over Cam. Yeah. I mean, I just think what a perfect thrower of the football and decision maker and offensive general at his peak but i think cam top 10 i would be more inclined to agree with i would take his peak over elways i mean there are definitely some guys in the top 10 quarterback conversation who i don't think were as it good just, as cam as their respective peaks and it sucks too because it was so brief just because his shoulder got all jacked up yeah. afterwards and i think it was I think it was always going to be like that with the way Cam delivered the ball. It was so cool back then just because it looked like he was throwing, like, darts. Like the way Cam And he was dabbing afterwards. Ball. But, yeah, he had the sickest collection of dances when he scored a touchdown, too. I think that – I do think that version of Cam is the greatest red zone threat I've ever seen, though, by a quarterback. And I will give him that distinct advantage over everybody. Although I will say, like I said, with Josh, with Steve Young, with Breeze, I do think it's close, but – I would take Cam you take over Cam over Peak Marino. That's tough. Eighty four Marino is tough. Yeah. If we're going one season peak, that's how we got to oh, do it. Oh man, are you gonna make me bump him to six? That's such a like less hot take. I'm just here to challenge the take, man. If you want to die on the hill, die on the hill. I think I might have just got murdered. I think I got killed Aww. on the hill. Aww. Unfortunately. R.I.P. Bozo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Logan, I've got one of my signature ones here, oh, and yeah. I may go for 10 oh, minutes yeah. again. A lot of you guys have probably heard me talk about this because it may be like, well, it's one of my two signature takes of all time, I would say. But if we're doing our hill to die on takes, I feel like I have to do it, especially because some of you probably haven't heard it. And that is, talk about bold, Russell Westbrook should have been fourth in the 2017 MVP race. So we got to go candidate by candidate here because I understand if you're outraged and if that sounds crazy. Let's start with James Harden, who I believe should have won the award. First of all, I think we have to look at preseason expectations because a huge part of the argument for Russ all year long was that he had no supporting cast, right? But the preseason consensus, and trust me, I've gone back and I've looked at all of the media preseason predictions, was that the Thunder would be better than the Rockets. People thought that the Rockets were really going to fall off a cliff. They had lost Dwight. They didn't have a second high-level offensive creator alongside James Harden. And yet the bottom line result was that the Rockets won 55 games and the Thunder won 47. Now, I do think that Harden was clearly playing with better offensive personnel. He had shooters like Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson. He had a nice little pick-and-roll partner in Clint Capella, although I think you could argue he would have really amplified anybody to thrive in that role just with how dominant he was at pick-and-roll at this stage of his career. 
but he produced the league's number two offense and Russ just produced the number 16 offense in the league. The Thunder were really a good team because of how great they were defensively. They had Oladipo, they had Andre Robertson, they had Steven Adams. I believe they were the number four defense in the league. So obviously these guys, their entire value is coming from what they're doing as offensive engines. Harden produced a better team offense. He also produced more total offense individually when you're looking at points created through scoring and assists on 6% better true shooting than Russ. So way more efficient. I think he just had a different level of control of the game because of how great he was as a pull-up jump shooter. He was just a more efficient, better offensive hub. And Russ was really historically inefficient for an MVP candidate. Like that is a major pillar of MVP candidacy historically. Guys who are very efficient. And this year of 38 guys to attempt at least 1,000 field goals, Russ was 35th in effective field goal percentage at under 48. He was 27th in true shooting percentage. So he is one of the least efficient MVPs ever. There was a time where I did a whole project on this, but I think it's just like him and 2001 Iverson in a, a tier of their own in the last 50 years. So... I do understand he was playing in a really bad spacing situation, and I think that he was an incredible athlete and a really good playmaker, and he did do a very good job in a bad situation. But when we're talking about MVPs, we've never like oohed and awed and elevated something to be an all-time season when there's that kind of bad efficiency individually, and when the team offensive results are just very meh and I've gone back with the precedent on all of this right like 2006 Kobe didn't win and I think he had a better case than Russ did this year but because the team results ultimately weren't good enough 2003 T-Mac was great it was an average team there are Iverson years where unlike 01 where the team won 56 games they just didn't reach a high enough level and so individual gaudy production has really never been enough given the precedent and I just think Harden was a clearly better offensive engine and then both of them suck defensively this is very obvious if you are pushing back on this you probably have some sort of image of Russ in your head that was just not accurate because he's a good athlete but he was totally disengaged off ball this entire year clearly the weakest defender on the team these numbers aren't perfect because I think it's just really difficult to find any one stat that is going to encompass a guy's defensive value. But of 80 guards to allow at least 500 field goal attempts, he allowed the eighth highest field goal percentage. So at the very least, I feel like that'll tell you that he was not having a positive contribution on that end of the floor. So they're both offensive engines, very ball dominant. Harden is much better in that role. They both suck defensively. And then we just have to look at some of the narrative points that ended up leading Russ to this. Number one being he averaged a triple-double. Triple-doubles don't matter, okay? They are a entirely manufactured milestone. The idea that having a 30-10-10 game is better than having a 29-9-11 game makes no sense. Especially given that these are just raw numbers that we're looking at completely outside of the context of a game. But why is getting 10 rebounds a game versus 8 rebounds a game a legitimate difference maker in these conversations? It never ever should be. Especially given that Russ was not having like a legitimately great rebounding season. Like of course Russ is a great rebounding guard. But I hate to use the phrase stat padding because I don't think that was the intention. But bottom line is that Russ's contested rebound rate was 16%. Every other player to average at least eight defensive rebounds a game had a contested rebound rate 
of at least 30%. So very clearly, you can see it in all these situations, right? Steven Adams is swallowing up all this attention on a box out and Russ just ends up getting the rebound when he didn't do the work for it. So when you consider that, I just do not value the benchmark. Both these guys had really good rebounding seasons for guards. They were both offensive engines. One of them was better at that job and that was James Harden. And again, there's the narrative about Russ's team support. And of course, people just wanted him to win because of what happened with KD. And I get that. And it sucked. And there's the human element to that. But I just don't think that that belongs in our MVP conversations. So I would definitely take Harden. Then we move to Kawhi. And I just think this is a matter of a dude who was having the ultimate winning contributions versus a guy who was having like the ultimate statistical contributions that didn't lead to the highest level of winning and that weren't cohesive to really great team basketball. Kawhi was basically at his defensive peak at this point. So you could argue he's the best defensive player alive. He's scoring 25 and a half points per game on 5% true shooting better than Russ and was the best guy on a 61 win team whose second best player was aging LaMarcus Aldridge and whose third and fourth leading scorers were 36 year old Pau Gasol and 34 year old Tony Parker. So he is far and away the most important best offensive player on a very good team offense. And he is far and away the most important and best defender on the best defense in the league. So given his efficiency, given his scoring skill set, given the fact that I just think there's no question that if you were trying to win a title, you would have wanted this version of Kawhi, this sort of two-way assassin more than Russ playing this style that really only worked in dragging a bad supporting cast to being middling through sheer volume. Just give me Kawhi. Like he was on a legitimately great team and it was because of him. Then we have LeBron James. And this is probably the most controversial, but I actually think it's a really clear case. The Cavs sucked without LeBron this year. They got outscored by almost nine points per 100 possessions. Okay, that's the equivalent of being like the worst team in the league. With him, they were plus 8.4 points per 100 possessions. That's the equivalent of being like the best team in the league. They were 51 and 23 with him. They were 0 and 8 without him. He is still producing at great volume, 26 and a half points, nine rebounds, nine assists per game. Unfortunately, he didn't quite get the memo that you had to get to 10 and 10 for anybody to care on five and a half percent true shooting better than Russell Westbrook. So he is much more efficient. He is letting to a leading to a much better team offense. I think clearly anybody in their right mind would tell you LeBron was a better offensive player than Russ at this stage in their careers. He is having a more positive defensive impact. Even if he's coasting on that end, he was better than Russ and his team still sucked. And he took them from sucking as badly as Russ's team did without him to then being much better the Cavs with LeBron than the Thunder ever were with Russ, particularly directly because of his contributions as a superior offensive engine. So I just think with Russ, people got infatuated with the raw counting stats, with the fact that he was chasing an achievement that we hadn't seen in so very long, but that ultimately I don't consider to be particularly meaningful and because of the narrative and everything that happened with Kevin Durant. But I think this was a great MVP race. I think that Russ had an amazing season. I just think it's the most flawed. It's the least valuable in terms of really leading to high level winning. And these were other great players who just had better seasons. So as I've said before, I would have had him fourth. And I mean, he's the lowest seed to win the award in a long time, right, Carson? Yes. So the precedent was everybody had been a top two seed since Michael Jordan in 1988, who was the three seed. So you have to go back to Moses to find anybody who was like the six seed. 
And I think that the spacing and guys around him, I think that is a, a big argument in favor of Russ. Like, it's a pretty abysmal offensive situation. But what happened in the playoffs, Carson? Yeah, he shot like 39% from the and field or something. They got bounced in five. Like, yeah, I think. Bye, bye, James Harden's Rockets. Exactly. I think that winning should be awarded at the highest level. This is a great take. I've heard this one before, but uh, I'm in agreement. I think Harden got robbed on that one. My sole basketball take here, Carson, and this is one that I've been going back to for a while now. I've had this stance for a while. I think the Rudy Gobert trade is the second worst trade in NBA history. And I think the worst one is the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Boston Celtics one. I think Mm -hmm. when you were looking at young talent, there's nothing even close. Like, one, the Nets going in on that core at such an old age with, like, Darren Williams, Brooke Lopez, and Joe Johnson— and KG and Paul Pierce were just so past their primes. It was just foolish. And you set up the Celtics for a potential dynasty. I mean, the Celtics have been relevant off of that trade for a while. Not just that trade, right? Tatum and Brown are obviously the core now. They've had great teams with those guys on the roster, with the Kyries, with the other teams they've constructed. But it set them up for massive success. The Gobert trade is really bad, in my opinion, because of the opportunity cost. What the Timberwolves could have been if they had just simply not done it. So you've got $40 million on your books that you can pay to anyone else. Like you have a a max roster spot alongside Ant and Cat. You have your own firsts for four seasons, and you also have that pick swap back. You also have Walker Kessler, who is a great young defensive five to build around. But it's just made so much worse, in my opinion, by how close Minnesota could be. I think Anthony Edwards will soon be a top 10 player in basketball. I think he's that good. I think he's a superstar. And this ultimately, I think, is going to drive Carl Anthony Towns out of Minnesota. We've heard the trade rumors this offseason. I think Rudy Gobert is ultimately unmovable. I think they have handcuffed themselves to this contract until it's over. And so you're not going to be a contending team, a legitimate contender for an NBA title until Gobert is gone, which means three years you could have had Ant, Cat, and somebody else with Vando, with your first-round picks, with Walker Kessler, where you were essentially competitive in one trade away where you can go out and like legitimately contend for a title. Like Think about it, where, I don't know, Damian Lillard this offseason, right? If you don't have Gobert, if you have all these firsts, maybe you want him instead of Cat. I don't know what the trade would be, but you would have flexibility to go out and make a move. So what are the ramifications of this trade? You got horrible value for an aging and declining one-dimensional player on a contract that is massive. He eats up all your cap space. You have given away all of your draft capital for the future. And this trade is going to drive Carl Anthony Towns out of Minnesota. I just think the what you could have had and where you're at uh, is one of the worst in NBA history. And, and just in terms of value, this is one of the worst value deals in NBA history. You should not have given up this much for Rudy Gobert like you look at the other big contracts that they've traded for, right? John Wall or Russell Westbrook. That's much more similar to what the original Go Bear trade should have been. Pennies on mm-hmm. the dollar. Like, his talent may have been requisite of what they gave up for those guys, but the contract made it to where it's just way too much value. And I think that is a big part of this. It's one of the worst value deals in NBA history. Like, you can look at other trades. I think the Paul George trade will historically be looked at as one of the worst in NBA history, too. I think that's horrible that the Clippers, I respect them for attempting it, but the health and looking back with this in hindsight, 
I think that's a lot of value for a team that's never even going to get mm. to the Western Conference Finals. I, I, I can't go with you there because it also was pivotal to getting them Kawhi Leonard. Cool. I mean, results-wise, it's just not worth it. Uh, Kareem to the Lakers is an all-time bad one. The Jazz trading their first-round pick uh, that ultimately became Magic Johnson. Bill Russell getting traded to the Celtics. Kobe to the Lakers. Dirk to the Mavericks. And, of course, Kyle Korver getting traded for a fax machine. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty bad, too. Um, or whatever it was, uh, for a copier, just crazy. In my opinion, I think the Gobert trade is the second worst in NBA history when you look at it all, man. The value, what they could have had, and what they gave up. Um, it's horrible. By a pretty good GM, too. I respect him, Connolly. I think he's a pretty bright guy, but I think this is a stain on, on what's a pretty clean resume. Uh, I've hated the Gobert trade since it happened, but I, I truly think this is the second worst in league history. It's a horrible deal. I don't have a ton of pushback here. I think that you mentioned some of the great egregious ones, which is just very meh players for legends. The other one that I would include there is the Sonic saying, yeah, we'll take Olden Polonese and give you young Scottie Pippen. Sure, why not uh, on draft day? That's really pretty straight up like, oh, ain't nobody for an all-time guy who then directly led to six championships. This one is really bad, though. I think it's going to age horribly. I think that everybody in the league would rather have Walker Kessler on his contract than Rudy Gobert. I think Kessler could legitimately reach comparable heights to Gobert. Now, I think that Gobert was a generationally great rim protector. I think that Walker Kessler is one of the most impressive rookie rim protectors we've ever seen and could maybe be 85-90% of Gobert defensively and has a little bit more skill and touch as a finisher offensively. Bottom line, you're not going to have to pay Walker Kessler... 46 million dollars when he's 33 years old and you didn't have to give up a whole bundle of first round picks for it when the fit never made sense like the Timberwolves are definitely trapped in basketball purgatory here even though they have one of the best young talents in the sport because the cat contract is massive and is too big and because of everything that they've invested in Gobert who just does not make sense a front court with those two I just don't think it was ever an ideal combination and uh, Gobert's just regressed. Like, he is just not the same sort of one-man top three defense that he used to be. And when he doesn't have that singular value, you're getting a pretty replaceable offensive big, but you're paying him like one of the best dudes in the league. So I think this is a really bad trade, and I think it is among the five worst ever. My last take here, Logan, I'm going to let you pick. I have down here Jokic is the best offensive center ever because that is like my take of all takes. I mentioned Russ, but realistically, this is the thing that I've been spouting for three years. This is the thing that I've probably felt most strongly about. I just don't know if it's that hot of a take anymore. Like, I have the whole spiel I'm willing to give it. I was also considering doing a Duncan over Kobe take. Which one would you prefer to hear? Let me let, let me rip uh, Duncan or Kobe. I do think people are warming up to the Jokic take. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say Carson was the pioneer of that like four years ago. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, let me rip Duncan Kobe. I know a lot of people think Kobe's top three. A lot of people are very high on him. Yeah. Let me hear that one. Okay. Can I give you a cliff notes on the Jokic take first for everybody at home? Oh, no, for sure, for sure. Okay, we'll see how fast I can do this. So, first point. 
I think Jokic makes a strong case to be the best scorer in the league. I think that that's what he is right now because of his brilliance as a touch shot maker and because of his physical dominance and ability to work his way down to the post and into the painted area out of pick and roll consistently and make those shots with insane efficiency. 69% on hooks, 66% on turnarounds, 67% on floaters this year. He's also a historically great jump shooter for a big man, 52% from mid-range, 38% from three, and historically versatile as a scorer. 95th percentile post-up, 90th percentile roll man, 73rd percentile cutter, 85th percentile spot-up, above average off-screen, right? You can legitimately have him curl around and knock him down for mid-range, and you can have him do all sorts of stuff off-ball that was inconceivable for other bigs. He runs inverted pick-and-roll with above-average efficiency while being this unrivaled force in terms of his dominance as a just traditional post-score right now. So... He has that. He just had one of the great playoff scoring runs ever, averaging 30 points per game on 63% true shooting in a title run. He's the only player to ever do that. So his scoring peak is on par in terms of production with the other all-time greats. His efficiency these last three years, plus 9.5% true shooting versus league average, is better than any of the other guys who I pulled, Shaq, Kareem, or Wilt. And the volume per 75 possessions... Only Shaq is scoring more, and it's 31 points per game versus 30. So as a pure scorer, his production is on pace with all these other guys. His uh, his efficiency is the best. And then you have to consider the fact that he is on a different level as a one-man offensive engine because he is also the best playmaker alive. People will talk about Wilt and what he achieved with his 50-point-per-game season in the early years of his career. His three greatest scoring seasons, the first three, the Warriors were 7th of 8 teams in offensive rating, then they were 6th of 8 teams, then they were 4th of 9 because the guy was averaging 2 assists per game. He just was incapable of weaponizing his scoring for playmaking as we've talked about so much. And there is no level of supporting cast that can justify that sort of scoring playmaking imbalance. So that was a major shortcoming of his. Jokic... The last three years has improved his team's offense by an average of 14 points per 100 possessions. He's led them to produce an offensive rating of 122 when he's on the court. That is four points or more better than Luka and Steph. The closest one man in this category is KD at an offensive rating of 119, who has played with a lot more individual talent in those three years. Like, you got to consider that one of these full seasons is with no Jamal Murray and no MPJ and Will Barton and Monte Morris as his primary guards. So... He's churning out easily the best offense in the league over this three-year stretch. Uh, maintain that elite status no matter the personnel. Is the best scorer alive, the best playmaker alive. Has totally unrivaled scoring versatility as a big man because of his brilliance as a jump shooter. Because of his ability to dominate out of all these different actions. That also means that you can lean on him in more clutch spots. It means that he's not as dependent on a great guard to feed him to uh, collapse the defense around him and create these opportunities like every other big ever has been. There's just never been a big with that kind of singular impact on an offense. There we go. That's my speedy version of it. It wasn't that speedy, but I had a lot to say. Thoughts? Do you agree, Logan? Yeah, of course. I don't think there's anybody in league history that comes close. Like, uh, he's just super talented. Yeah. yeah like, I, I, we've never seen this combination of playmaking and scoring from the big spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm 100% with you. And I'll just say this. People will talk about Shaq's gravity, right? How he reshapes the defense because of how dominant he was just around the paint as a finisher. I just don't think there is any amount of gravity in that sense that can make up for the fact that Jokic can make every single pass in the book in all these different ways and directly 
create very high percentage opportunities for his teammates every possession. And I do think the versatility as a score matters. Like those guys had all of them legitimate weaknesses. If it's free throw shooting, if it's just skilled shot making outside of the restricted area, you know, Kareem, I would say is the one who didn't have as much of a glaring weakness, but he could not obviously initiate from the perimeter and put on this sort of jump shooting displays that Jokic can routinely. The guy shot 45% from deep in an entire playoff run. So I do think he's the greatest offensive center ever. The Duncan Kobe, I don't know if it's that hot of a take. I just think there's definitely a really large contingency of people who, like you said, would have Kobe top three all time. And I think that those people are probably looking this in terms of uh, scoring skill. And what I mean by that is the combination of footwork, the overall bag, if you will, the number of counters that a guy has balance and difficult shot making. I think those are the areas where Kobe is in like the top, top tier of all time doing it in a variety of ways back to the basket off ball from mid range, all these things. It's just spectacular. His basketball skill. The reason that I would take Duncan over Kobe is because I believe Duncan could consistently lead you to be dominant on one end of the floor in a way that Kobe couldn't. And with Duncan, we're talking about defense there. His first 11 seasons, the Spurs were top three defenses every single year. Five of those years, they were the number one defense in the league. That is long past him playing alongside another great rim protector like David Robinson. He is just one of the absolute best defensive anchors that we have ever seen. Top five all time. And then he was always a good offensive hub. He would score at volume, at above average efficiency for his entire career. He was a good playmaking big out of the post. He was a legitimate mid-range jump shooter. So if he was your best guy, it didn't really matter the personnel. You were going to be a good offense. Like, you can look at the 3 title when there's some good supporting pieces. But, I mean, his second best players, like Steven Jackson, are very young and efficient Tony Parker. Like, there's nobody else for him to lean on, and they're still winning the title. And it's because he was just clearly the best player in the world. Kobe is a better offensive player than Tim Duncan, but not by the same margin that we're seeing in terms of the defensive gap. And because Kobe was not the most efficient scorer, and because he was not the highest-end playmaker, he just wasn't an elite one-man offense in the same way that a lot of the other like top 10 players of all time were. Just having Kobe alone wouldn't make you a great offense in the same way that just having Tim Duncan alone would make you a great team defense and then obviously Kobe's defensive impact like Kobe was a good defender I think he's a rather overrated defender because of just how iconic he is as a player but no matter what from the perimeter he's not going to have the sort of singular impact that Duncan does and I just think Duncan's peak in that 2002-2003 range is higher than anything that we ever saw from Kobe I we talked about it I think that 2003 is one of the best title runs ever 03 Duncan's putting up 25, 15, and 5 with three blocks a game. Again, just a hub on both ends of the floor in a way that Kobe couldn't be. And regardless of who was alongside him, Duncan was going to propel you to be around a 60-win team. And obviously, he played with other great talent, with Parker and Ginobili, and with David Robinson in the early years. But in the in-between years, in the early 2000s, before those international guys had reached their peaks, and long after David Robinson was at his... They were still utterly dominant, and it's because of Duncan being the best player on the planet, reaching a height that Kobe never did. I also think that Kobe's first three rings, he was great. Shaq was the best player. At 2000, especially, Kobe just wasn't as fully evolved form yet. He was an inefficient 15 a game in those finals, so I don't value those quite as much as the Duncan rings. And yeah, 
it comes down to an all-time defensive peak with a very good offensive hub peak from Duncan that I just think was going to make you an elite team no matter what around him. And I think that the consistency of the results from him demonstrated that. So I get that people love Kobe for the aesthetics or for what he meant to them personally, just the Mamba mentality for playing in LA. Of course, there's so many Lakers fans out there. I get all those things, but I think in terms of basketball value and winning impact, Duncan surpasses him. Kobe's one of my favorite players all time, man. And I think he got a lot of people like our age hooked on basketball. I mean, the, the intensity, the passion, the fire, the uh, clutch, the ability, like you said, to score everywhere. But I think the distinction is the defensive value that you get from Tim. And then I think I think Tim Duncan's honestly underrated offensively. Like a lot of people, you know, again, you'll look at the just raw numbers. Tim was automatic from the post, on the low block, from the mid-range too. Like it was just easy, could shoot over anybody. And was a damn good passer and playmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, not like Jokic or anything, but among bigs, was a legitimately good decision-maker and passer within the flow of the offense. He's not going to dominate and just take over right there. Uh, So I I think this is a really solid take. Uh, I actually had, Carson, you joked about OJ at the top of the episode. I legitimately had an OJ. Not that one. Not that one. Slow down. Not not that one, bro. Not that one. I I think his 14-game season where he had 2,000 yards legitimately is probably the most impressive uh, season by a running back ever to do that in such a short span is, uh, I mean, it's literally never been done by anybody else. Uh, I considered going with Antonio Brown has the highest peak of any wideout. That was another honorable mention for me. I think he's second behind Jerry Rice. I wouldn't die on that hill. I think you take Jerry's best six game or six six season stretch, and you take AB's best six season stretch. They're very comparable. The only difference is that Jerry legitimately did it for a decade, and that mm-hmm. is the distinction that I'd make too but it's very close I thought about going with Phillip Rivers is the most overrated quarterback in NFL history I hate Phillip Rivers I despise him he never won anything and I think he is overrated um I also thought about going with a baseball one for you whoa sickos and I decided it wasn't hot enough it was just going to be I think Barry Bonds and Pete Rose have to be in the Hall of Fame I think it's absolutely criminal that both of those guys aren't in I know that Cooperstown's very much against cheating and they've drawn a distinct line if you are a steroid user if you gambled on games like Pete did that you won't get into the hall but I think they're two of the greatest of all time and I don't know I think I think the baseball hall of fame loses a little bit of credibility by not having those two guys in I get being staunch on rule breakers and not letting them into the hall but uh, Barry was great before the roids don't get me wrong juiced up Barry Bonds is the greatest baseball player ever but Barry was an all-time player before the roids and Pete Pete's the greatest hitter ever. So I think both those guys deserve to be in the hall. I just think that's kind of a consensus opinion Mm. uh, as well. I think there's a very generational split there. I think younger generation is more pro those guys getting in. Baseball sesh coming in hot. I mean, if we're opening it up, I got tennis takes on tennis takes, Logan. We want to do tennis takes. You just give me a time and I'll be there and I'll talk about Novak Djokovic for four hours. Some of mine that I considered... Bill Russell is clearly the greatest defensive player ever. I mean, the bottom line key point there is that the Celtics had the number one defense in 12 of his 13 seasons. Like, nobody has ever consistently generated elite defenses like him. Is it it close between him and Hakeem? I know it's tough comparing generations. It's not close. I don't think so. I think given the importance of rim protection in the 60s pre-three-point line, I mean, just how singularly a guy as great as Russell could make you the best team in the league because of his dominance there. 
Yeah, and I mean, if we had the block numbers, they would be inconceivable. His IQ, it's incredible to watch Bill Russell play defense. I had Dirk's 2011 title is overrated here. Bruh. I think it's a great title. I just think people act like it's the greatest title run ever. I think Jokic's title run this past year is clearly better. Like, better scorer, playmaker, rebounder, and defender. I think Akeem's individual titles are clearly more impressive. Like, 1994, right? It's a worse supporting cast than what Dirk won with. And he's also the best defensive player alive and is scoring at, like, similar volume. I just think it's a great run, but because it was against the Heatles and because it was modern, and of course there's just an when, inherent and, bias and pe- there. People, people always point it. to him beating like KD and Kobe in that run too. But I think I think that twenty eleven Mavs team also has one of the best supporting casts of all time yeah. too. Well, I don't know about best supporting cast of all time, but it's a very, very good collective supporting cast. And I think that that's what we often miss is we just look at who are the star duos, who are the star trios. And it's like, well, if you're talking about the best, like two through, if you're talking about like four through sevens, right? Okay. Maybe Jason Terry is your second leading scorer, but you have Jason Kidd and Sean Marion and Tyson Chandler, and JJ Beret and Paige Stojakovic. Like it's just such a, it is a very good all around supporting cast. Uh, so I ultimately didn't want to die on that hill. Cause I don't want to be negative against the boy Dirk, but I do think it's a bit overrated. I had my Bill Walton versus John Stockton all-time take here, but I decided that I talked enough about white guys already because I thought I was going to do my Jokic take. I actually did do my Jokic take. Uh, I considered for a football take, Terrell Davis, highest running back peak ever. Huh? I thought about it. I ultimately I like that. I like that. didn't dive into it enough to know if I would really die on that hill. And then I thought about a Jerry West underrated take just because I feel like I would take him over Oscar. I think just the all-around scoring, playmaking defense with great efficiency and team results that we saw from him for over a decade. I think he's in my top 15 all-time, and I think that that's higher than the consensus. So those are the ones that I had written down. But this was a ton of fun, man. I mean, this is a great way to to fill the time in July. Next time, though, dude, I think tennis I think tennis sesh would do good. You get a little, maybe a little Carlos Alcaraz love. I know oh, you've been big on yeah. him for a while, too. Oh, yeah, um, Logan. Oh, yeah. Sure have. Since he was 16. Well, I didn't really like how that sounded. All right, let's wrap what? this up. He, he came onto the scene. He had a very impressive win at 16, Logan. He beat Ramos Vinolas. It was, it was. Thank you for clearing that up. I was worried about you for a second. Yeah. All right. Let's end this puppy. So this has been great fun. As always, hope you guys enjoyed. If you want more Nerd Sesh content, you can follow us on TikTok at Nerd Sesh. Instagram is the same handle. Twitter is at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can find lots of trivia stuff from us on TikTok. You can find some historical breakdowns of great players like some of those who we talked about today. I may do a Steve Nash video soon. We are, of course, on YouTube, the volume page. You can subscribe there. If you want the video content, you can listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can join our Discord at the link tree across our social media bios just to talk sports with us really whenever you want. You can get our merch. We've got the Nerd Sesh flags behind us. We've got hats, we've got shirts, we've got hoodies. You can check all of that out at thevolume.com or also through our link tree. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash.
With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.